from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we'll be joined by two researchers who study the ways in which people care for themselves, but do it through two very different lenses. First, we'll talk to a scientist who researches what works and what doesn't when it comes to sleep. Then, we'll be joined by a nurse practitioner who has been studying the ways diabetics use health equipment hacking to meet their health needs. The integrated physiologist and a socio-techno-endocrinologist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. I don't know about you, but I'm really into life hacks. Those are the clever little things we do to make bigger things easier, less expensive, and less stressful. A few years ago, for example, I took up the coffee nap. Since caffeine takes about 20 minutes to really hit your system, drinking a cup of joe followed by a quick rest is a great way to get turbocharged on a long day. Now, it turns out there's at least a little bit of research backing the benefits of coffee naps, but that's not always the case when it comes to life hacks. And that's part of what we'll be talking about today on Undisciplined. Joining us on the line from Colorado, where he is an assistant professor of integrative physiology at the University of Colorado at Boulder, is Christopher Deppner. His latest study published in the journal Current Biology puts another nail in the coffin of recovery sleep. In short, he's found that the increased disease risk faced by people who get insufficient sleep isn't reduced one bit by those of us who try to make up for the loss with an extra few hours on the weekend. Chris, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Hi, thank you. And with us in studio is Michelle Lichman, a nurse practitioner and assistant professor at the University of Utah, whose research focuses on the intersection of diabetes, disease management, and technology. Her recent study in the Journal of Diabetes Science and Technology used an analysis of social media posts to better understand the health outcomes of people with diabetes who are using open source technology to provide for their needs. Michelle, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for having me. Let's start today by talking about sleep. Okay, so if right now you're like, this sounds a heck of a lot like Death Cab for Cutie, there's a reason for that. That is the Postal Service, an indie rock band from Seattle, whose lead singer, Ben Gibbard, is also the founder of Death Cab for Cutie. That song, by the way, is called Sleeping In, and that's the subject of the research of my first guest today, who researches the intersections of sleep patterns, circadian disruption, and disease. And his most recent study provides further evidence that sleeping in on the weekends doesn't repay the health debts incurred by missing out on slumber during the rest of the week. Chris Deppner, you've been studying the intersection of diet, exercise, and sleep on human health for more than a decade now. We talk a lot about two of those things, diet and exercise. Why don't we talk more about the impact of sleep on our health? Maybe part of the reason is sleep is so easy to neglect or forgo. So you could watch an extra hour of TV at night and do that instead of sleeping. And it's not obvious that that may be having negative chronic health consequences for you down the road. And, and given our modern society with sort of 24-hour you know, availability of entertainment and stuff, I think it's just been a neglected part of an optimal healthy lifestyle. I guess that makes a lot of sense because, like, food, if we go without food for very long, we're, we're done for, right? So we notice that right away. We notice because we're hungry. If we went without exercise, any exercise for very long, we'd just waste away. So sleep is that thing that we can, we can put off for a long time before we really start to notice those health effects. 
Exactly. Part of it also is if you don't get enough sleep, you mentally can feel recovered after, you know, just getting even a little bit of sleep. Like sometimes a nap makes you feel better and you think you're good to go, but I think you're probably not. Every single person on this planet sleeps. We're all impacted by the amount of sleep we get and the quality of sleep that we get. But there's still a lot of basic information out there that we don't know about how sleep impacts our lives. Research vacuums like that can be really alluring or they can be really intimidating. So what made you want to dive headfirst into this area of research? We know that sleep loss, or if you're not getting enough sleep, it's associated with a lot of negative health consequences and things like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and even cancer. I was really interested in, you know, why if you're not getting enough sleep, does this increase your risk of, you know, chronic metabolic disease? And then the second part is, can we actually do anything about it given the epidemic of sleep loss in modern society? So in this recent study, you wanted to understand the impact of weakened sleep, what some people call recovery sleep. Before we get into the details, let's talk a little bit about how you and your colleagues set this up. You enlisted a group of young, presumably healthy adults, and you separated them into three cohorts? So these were young, incredibly healthy people. As good as we can possibly tell, they have no medical issues at all. So we divided them into three groups. We had a control condition, and these people, they were the lucky ones. They just got to stay on a consistent nine-hour time in bed sleep schedule throughout the study. Then there was the insufficient sleep group, and they unfortunately had sleep restriction throughout the study, which was about two weeks. And then there was the weekend recovery group, and they had a simulated five-day work week where they got insufficient sleep, so about five hours of sleep. And then they had a weekend, and for that weekend, they could sleep in, they could take naps, they could sleep as much as they wanted. But after the weekend, they had to go back to another work week of insufficient sleep. So we really wanted to see what happens, you know, sort of during the weekend, and then After the weekend, when you go back to that insufficient sleep, what are the health consequences, positive or negative? So I assume you need a measure of pretty significant control over this. How do you ensure that the subjects that you're dealing with got the hours of sleep that you were trying to study? So this was a really intensive study. So all the subjects actually lived in our lab at the University of Colorado for about two weeks. We had basically total control over their sleep-wake schedule in the laboratory. So this was a nine-day study, but just in that amount of time, you were able to see that the sleep-restricted group ate more food and gained more weight during that short time. They also showed a decrease in insulin sensitivity. Why is that important? So that's really important because they went from a normal, healthy insulin sensitivity level, which is basically a measure of how well our body can regulate blood glucose. They went from normal healthy to what would be considered pre-diabetic. So that's the level of decline that we saw. That, that's a week, a week. That's all it takes. Yes. It's pretty shocking. But in about a whole nother week of complete recovery, they can get back to their baseline level. But these are very healthy people. Okay, so a week of recovery will bring us back to baseline level, but... Talk about what happened with the weekend recovery sleep group where you only got a couple of days of recovery. So during the weekend recovery sleep with food intake, we did see that people ate less food sort of back to what they would normally do when they were getting enough sleep. When people weren't getting enough sleep, they tended to eat a lot of food late at night, and that was corrected specifically during the weekend. Problem is when they go back to that insufficient sleep, immediately the amount of food they eat is increased and they eat way more food late at night again. 
And we know both the amount and the timing of food intake is really important. So that weekend recovery sleep, that didn't protect them from the weight gain. They gained as much weight as the people who didn't get recovery sleep. And then the insulin sensitivity, it was just as bad, if not worse in some cases, as the people who got the insufficient sleep without the weekend. I just want to make clear that the recovery sleep group was faring even worse off than the group that had limited but consistently limited sleep? Yeah, so we actually did a really sophisticated measure here where we could look at adipose tissue, liver tissue, and muscle tissue-specific insulin sensitivity. What we saw is the people who got the weekend recovery sleep, their livers and their muscle was actually worse after the weekend than it was beforehand. So it looks like there may actually be some negative consequences from getting that weekend recovery sleep. The implication here is that a lack of sleep or or patterns of inconsistent sleep could put people at risk of metabolic disorders. Is there enough evidence at this point from this study and, and other studies that sleep deprivation is actually causal for either getting these diseases or getting them in worse ways? The epidemiological data is sort of sort of correlation. So we know that people who have increased rates of these chronic diseases like diabetes, they also have sleep issues. They don't get enough sleep. We don't know if it's causal. It could be the other way. Having this disease could actually cause you know, sleep issues. This study does sort of add another line of evidence that it could be causal. A future line of research that we want to do is take people who aren't getting enough sleep regularly in their natural world, which is not unfortunately hard to find these people, and then help them improve their sleep for a month or two months and see if that actually reduces these risk factors that we're measuring in this study as well. And if that does, that would provide another line of evidence that this actually is causal in the development of these diseases. That's Christopher Deppner, whose recent study in Current Biology suggests that all that extra weekend sleep you're getting isn't doing much good if you're not getting enough sleep the rest of the week. Chris, can you stick around to meet our next guest at the end of the program? Yes, definitely. And that is the electric soul pop group Von Iva backing the singer and actress Zoe Deschanel. On a track from the movie Yes Man, the lyrics of that song celebrate the power of hackers in the way we've traditionally thought of them as people who can mess up our digital world. Increasingly, though, the idea of hacking has taken on a more positive meaning, particularly when it comes to ideas like life hacking and health hacking. And one group that seems to have really rallied around the idea of healthcare hacking includes people with diabetes who have, in recent years, been working to create cheaper alternatives to FDA-approved medical devices like glucose monitors and insulin pumps. Michelle Lichman, when did you first hear about this group of people? I've always been interested in looking at how people were using social media to support their diabetes, and I started doing this back in my PhD program. And then I started seeing people who were rallying together to try and create solutions to manage their diabetes. There were people who were challenged with the fact that the systems that were currently FDA approved didn't quite work for them in the way that they needed. So they essentially hacked off-the-shelf systems and made them talk to each other so that they could actually get the benefit that they really needed out of these devices. So it acts more like a pancreas would. 
And these systems, the FDA systems, they don't just not work for some people, but they're really expensive, sometimes prohibitively expensive, right? So they're very expensive. And I think that um, one of the challenges is that it takes long periods of time for things to get approved. One of the mantras behind this even starting was a hashtag called, we are not waiting. And what that essentially means is that we're not waiting for industry to make what we need. We're not waiting for the FDA to approve what we need. We're going to create what we need. And so currently what is being used is existing continuous glucose monitors and an older insulin pump device that you can't actually get unless you're buying it kind of on the underground. Usually you find them online. This is a completely brave new world when it comes to medical devices. Absolutely. And I think a lot of healthcare providers, it can seem scary because I think people get nervous about these devices. Are they their older systems? So they are no longer under warranty. Are they going to work the way that we hope that they work? And then I also think that there's some legal ethical issues that healthcare providers get concerned about as well, because these are systems that healthcare providers aren't necessarily trained on. They're not FDA approved. You know, in in the research that we found that people who were living with diabetes were really satisfied with the product. They felt like they were really benefiting, not just physically, but mentally as well. And I think that's a piece that we often forget is the mental impact of having a chronic condition. Providers have to, like you were saying, they have to weigh the knowledge that their patients are using these devices against the risks of talking to their patients about how to get the most out of these devices since they're not FDA approved and they're not under warranty and and there's some risks all around there. Well, when you think about someone who lives with a chronic condition and how they're trying to create a device that works for them, one of the first things that they think about is safety. They want to be safe. That is completely true with how um, this open APS was designed. So we as clinicians, we work together with people with, who have diabetes to create these pump settings that people will use that will help them deliver insulin throughout the day. And people reported that they felt like it was a safe system. And you're in clinical practice, right? So do you have patients that come in and talk to you about these? Absolutely. I have patients who are doing it, and I have patients who are actively seeking it out. So... When researchers want to know about people's experiences with a certain treatment or therapy, they they put together a study and maybe they get a hold of a, a patient database as part of the effort to recruit participants. And that's all hard enough, but there are no patient databases of open APS users. So you chose a different route. You started with a hashtag and following how people were talking about their experiences on Twitter. Can you talk about that? Sure. We looked at the hashtag OpenAPS, which stands for Open Artificial Pancreas System. And we looked at all of the hashtags for uh, several years. And we could look at those tweets to look at what people were really talking about, how they were talking about the system, what clinical benefits they felt like it was providing. And what we found is that people are tightening up that glucose variability so they're not having these extreme roller coaster rides which is really improving quality of life. It's really improving sleep. So if somebody doesn't have these extreme uh, glucose levels in the night, they have better sleep. So we know that people get on Twitter to celebrate things. They get on Twitter to complain about things. How do we know that the way they talk about their lives on Twitter, the way they talk about uh, their experience with the system on Twitter is pretty reflective of their actual experience? 
That's a great question. One of the things that is really important is that this is unprompted. However, we also know that socially, a lot of times we like to talk about things in the positive, although not always. But that's one of the limitations of the study is that potentially people were talking about it in a positive light and didn't necessarily explain all the negative components of using OpenAPS. So that's something that requires future study. And you also found that OpenAPS is perceived by these people to be safe. That's different than being safe, uh, especially if you're talking about the kinds of safety that are generally required and expected of treatments and therapies and health equipment that's gone through this like rigorous FDA testing. Is there a way to know beyond this if open APS is safe in at those sorts of levels? So right now, there's actually a database called Open Humans that people are donating their data. So there's a ton of glucose data that's been donated, and people are examining that right now. There are also some smaller studies in which people are actually initiating this do-it-yourself artificial pancreas, where um, people can get started, where we can see kind of baseline prospectively. Are there lessons in this study for... Well, for all of us, as, as we enter a world in which healthcare hacking is becoming more prevalent, not just for diabetes, but for all sorts of conditions. I think that it's really important for industry to pay attention to patient needs. And I also think it's important for patients to not settle. So you talked about other healthcare issues. My cousin recently had an amputation and he was not satisfied with the prosthetic that was given to him and he created one out of his garage. And so I think that there are people who are not satisfied with the status quo who know that they can make a better product and they do. And then what happens is they can share it with other people and then everybody benefits. That's Michelle Lichman, whose recent study in the Journal of Diabetes Science and Technology used Twitter to better understand how people with diabetes are using hacked technology in an effort to improve their lives. Michelle, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Is that all right? Absolutely. All right. Well, Michelle, this is one of the world's top experts on sleep deprivation, Chris Deppner. And Chris, this is one of the smartest people in the world when it comes to health hacking, Michelle Lichman. Hi, Chris. Hi. <laughs> Chris, as Michelle was talking about using Twitter as a window into the experiences of people with diabetes, I couldn't help but think of what it might tell us about people's other health habits. Is there potential for similar analyses to help us understand the way that people are using and misusing sleep in their lives? Yes. There's probably not a lot of data out there actually on type 1 diabetes and sleep habits as much as just the general population and sleep. But there is one study that was published in Current Biology where they looked at Donald Trump's Twitter account and they estimated his average nightly sleep duration and sleep timing simply by using the fact that he tweets so much. So I'm wondering if you could use that type of analysis to estimate sort of when people might be sleeping or just the general timing of their sleep patterns with type 1 diabetes and sort of this online social media community. That's an excellent point. We haven't done it in type 1 diabetes, although that would be great. One of the things that we have done is we have looked at people who live with prediabetes and we looked at their Facebook posts and we included the timing of their posts and their normal sleep schedule that they self-report. And not only are we capturing that sleep data, but we're also capturing data about their activities that they do. So are they engaging in outdoor events where they might be active? Are they engaging in going out to restaurants often? And so we're capturing that information and we're trying to look at all the prediabetes risk factors and pull that together through a social media lens. Nice. Yeah, that's very exciting. I think that could be super useful. 
Do you see people actually talking about sleep habits? So I know in your paper and in the interview you mentioned people report improved sleep. Is there any way that you could actually get at that, do you think, um, using this type of analysis? I'm not sure if if Twitter would be the best way, just because Twitter is so sporadic. People aren't tweeting all of the time. So I think it would have to be coupled with some sort of laboratory like you have. You talked a little bit about causal effect. And I think one thing that's really important for people who ex- already have diabetes is for a lot of people, there is a fear of hypoglycemia in the night. And hypoglycemia in the night is really, really critical to treat. So if people are worried about their glucose levels, it can prevent them from going to sleep and also wake them up in the middle of the night. As you imagine, as someone gets their glucose closer to normal, they're closer to hypoglycemia as well. And so I think that we need to pay attention to that component. And I'm wondering, in your research, have you thought about looking at people who have diabetes already and how glucose levels overnight can impact their eating patterns the next day? Yeah, that's a great question. We have not so far been able to take people with uh, diabetes type 1 or type 2 into the laboratory and do these sort of really controlled studies. We are trying to move into more using sort of the continuous glucose monitor, which um, obviously is probably very common in what you do, and try and just monitor people both in the lab and outside of the lab and look at their sleep patterns and how does not getting enough sleep impact sort of that overnight glucose. There is one caveat that does get a little challenging with the laboratory studies is when you allow people free access to food, they do tend to overeat by more than maybe they would in their normal environment just because there's sort of a buffet sitting right there for them. But we could definitely look at that for sure. And I think that it's interesting when you look at sleep, there's also a social component to it. It seems like if you're eating more, the next day following a day of less sleep, are the other people in your family following those same habits? Are your children, is your spouse following those same habits? So I know that you looked at a healthy group, but if you think about families, um, how is lack of sleep in a parent affecting the rest of the family, which would be an interesting study as well? Yeah, that for sure would be. And, you know, most of the research done for sort of sleep loss or insufficient sleep and metabolic disease has all been these really highly controlled laboratory trials, which it does give us a window into sort of the physiology that's changing, but it removes all of those other factors that you're talking about. Really in the sleep field, there is a push now and we're just starting to get some of these studies funded. Hopefully I can get one myself. But it'd be taking people, like I said, who aren't getting enough sleep and letting them do that sort of naturally in their normal environment and looking at some of these other lifestyle factors and see how that might be contributing to, one, why they're not getting enough sleep, and then, two, looking at correcting it. So we want to look at that both in healthy people and our lab's interested in prediabetes right now, but certainly sort of the range of disease spectrum would be of interest there. Chris, Michelle studies health hacking, people who build their own devices to help them deal with their diabetes. And I know a lot of people do a lot of things. They they have a lot of devices to help them sleep. And of course, there are all these sleep medications. Are you seeing in your research people who are starting to hack their own equipment, maybe even their own medicines to get a better night's sleep? I know people 
do things like take melatonin. With the legalization of marijuana in a lot of states now, people think that you know they're using marijuana. Um, some people like to use alcohol. And these things, they can be helpful. The problem is a lot of those, specifically marijuana and alcohol, they're more of a sedative. So they will help you fall asleep. Your brain activity during that type of sleep, it's not normal, so it's not as restorative as normal sleep, and it tends to fragment your sleep in the later parts of the night. So using those things isn't working as well. This gives me another idea, though, that could work incredibly well is sort of smart lighting systems. So these are systems where we can turn up the lights really bright and sort of mimic sunlight during the daytime and then dim them at nighttime before bed. It could be very easy to, if you do have LED lights in your home, to sort of hack a system that tunes those automatically. I could very easily see that happening in the future. And that could have widespread health impacts for a lot of people to improve your circadian clock. And in addition to that, could there be some sort of system that shuts down the TV, that shuts off the cell phone? background activity, the lighting is really interrupting sleep. A lot of times when I see patients who have trouble sleeping, I actually have them use the radio instead of using their cell phone. Now we have Kindles where you're actually flipping through books to go to bed. And I think that that's causing some issues as well. Yeah, I think it is for sure. And at least in sort of the younger population, anecdotally, we hear reports of People keep their cell phones on at nighttime and they'll get a tweet or a text message or whatever at like 2 a.m., which wakes them up, which automatically disrupts their sleep. But then they engage in this like social media conversation in the middle of the night, which is obviously very disruptive to their sleep. And then, you know, it's going to delay your ability to get back to sleep. You know, in modern society, that problem is just becoming much more widespread. So we do need to address it as best we can. And I think taking multiple approaches, including perhaps hacking some of this stuff, is very doable. We are just about out of time. Christopher Deppner, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you. It was very fun. And Michelle Lichman, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. 